I see that uh, many of you are, are falling into your uh, fall routine. I know things are probably a little hectic here at the beginning uh, of the fall for a lot of you. You were just kind of settling in, into life. Some of you are trying to find a church to settle into. And for those of you who have chosen this to be your home church, I just want to encourage you to, to jump into an ethos community. I know now you've been, you're done searching, you're, down, you're done looking around, here, here you're settling. We want to encourage you to settle into a community where you can have a some good time of prayer and fellowship and be on mission together. So let me just encourage you to go check out one of our ethos communities this week. And for those of you who are, you know, you say, well, my Sunday night's all booked up. Well, we have Wednesday nights, we do ethos communities also. So pick one, go for it. Second thing I want to say before we jump into our text today is if you've not been baptized and you uh, claim to be a follower, believer of Jesus Christ, you need to get baptized. I mean, it's very clear commands from the scripture, uh, believe and be baptized. And for those of you who have yet to be baptized, we're going to have a baptism in two weeks, two weeks from today. We'll be doing it after church in the afternoon. So I'm going to encourage you to get baptized. Come, come speak to me. Go speak to Pastor John. Uh, if you don't know who, that, who we are, then just look up in the bulletin and, and find an email in there and email somebody who wants you to get baptized in a couple weeks from now. Well, we're still in the book of Matthew, so let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We've been marching through this book for almost a year now. We find ourselves in Matthew 20, and I'm just going to read to you verses 17 through 28. So let's, let's stand and read. Starting in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See? We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, They were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." You may be seated. This past week, the biography of Steve Jobs was released just a few weeks after his death. Steve Jobs, as you may know, was the founder of Apple Computer, which makes the the Mac, uh, the iPod, and the iPhone, which many of you are tempted to check right now as I preach. 
Well, he was a man, if you knew who he was, he pursued us greatness. He, he pursued passion. He had a great amount of passion in what he did. Uh, near the end of his book, he explains about, a little bit about his passion. Uh, here's a quote him. He says, my passion has been to build a company where people were motivated to make great products. And he poured all he had into pursuing this greatness because he was intent not on just making great pot products, but he was intent on changing the world. For those of you who are, are really into um, Apple and Mac, maybe you remember a commercial put out by Apple Computer years ago that says, the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. And you know Jobs had this great drive, and this great passion to pursue greatness. And I would say that most of us in here, in this context especially, have this internal drive for greatness. And you might not say it in those terms. You might sound kind of arrogant and, and proud if you said it in those terms. But most of you in here want to live lives of significant. You want to feel like that you are, you are making an impact, that while you're in this world, you're making some type of positive dent upon this world, and when you pass off the scene, you want to be remembered as someone who actually did something great. It, it's in you. It's this, this desire to do something huge, magnificent, and great. Now, the, the, the tension comes in because of this. You're also a follower of Jesus. And Steve Jobs, I, I did not know him, but it seems like he is not known as a man who is a follower of Jesus. Perhaps in his last days he, he trusted in Christ, but he was not known as a follower of Jesus. But he was known for a man who pursued greatness. And that pursuit that was in him, that internal drive, is also in you. But you also follow Jesus. And so here's, the, the, I guess, the, the million-dollar point or, or question I want to ask you. How do you reconcile the reality that you follow Jesus while at the same time you have an internal impulse for greatness. I mean, what do you do about those two things? What do you do? I mean, do, do, you, do you shut Jesus out and, and push forward? Or do you invite Jesus in, but you squash any hint of ambition in your life? What do you do? And, and I would tell you, I don't think you do either. I don't think you squash Jesus and ambition. I don't think you have to, you have to just have an either-or type thing go on. This is kind of the main uh, point I want to get at today. It's this. Jesus, from his word, does not condemn the desire for greatness, but he simply just flips it. Let me explain by what I mean by flipping it. See, in this world, they, they, they approve greatness. And there's a certain way that greatness is viewed by the world. But then you bring God into the picture, and there's a certain way that God views greatness. So the world's way of greatness is striving as hard as you can with God out of the picture. But God's way of pursuing greatness is, is striving self-sacrificially, uh, leaving self behind, trying to serve others, striving in such a way that doesn't leave God behind, but seeks 
to glorify him. So one of the things I think we misunderstand in the Christian life is that when we have ambition and desires for significance and to do something great, that that somehow has to be suppressed. And I would say, no, 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 do not suppress it. Just flip it in the sense where you're not pursuing your greatness. You're pursuing greatness for the glory of God. And you've got to wonder, well, how do you do that? How do you pursue greatness for the glory of God? And here's the answer. By serving other people. And Jesus will show you how. Let's look at the word this morning. Jesus will show you how to pursue this greatness through serving others. We're moving up to Jerusalem. If you look at verse 17, we're going up to Jerusalem. He's, he's about to face the cross. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, he's got something to tell them. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Have you ever been taught... Maybe you've been taught this in your secular religious class that Jesus came on the scene of this earth as a good man doing good things and he accidentally got himself killed. That's not according to the word of God. According to the word of God, a few times Jesus tells his disciples beforehand, I'm going to be killed. That's why I came. I'm going that direction. I'm going towards a trial. I'm walking into a trap. I will be set up. Then I will be crucified. I will be buried. And I'm ready to roll. It's no mistake. Jesus intentionally walked into a trap. He intentionally knew he was going to die for sinners. But praise God, he did rise again. Let's keep going. On his way to Jerusalem to be killed, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. So this, this woman's coming up. Just to understand the context. Pretty good. Her name's, uh, pretty sure her name's Salome. She is Jesus' aunt, the mother, uh, his mother Mary's sister, Salome. And she's the mom of James and John. So James and John probably put their mom up to this question. You know, sometimes when you don't get what you want, you call your mom, and you call your dad, like, can you come and you talk to my professor and see if they'll give me an A. This is kind of like they're putting their mom up to it because there must be some power struggle going on among the disciples, some type of power struggle going on. And so they're approaching Jesus, and they want some positions of, of authority and status and power. Verse 21, and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, well, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Huh, that's interesting. Well, let's do a little flashback here. Flashback to chapter 19, verse 28. Matthew 19, 28 says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So this woman and her son, James and John, know that the ruling authority is coming, that they're headed to the most prominent city of Jerusalem, and they know that the Messiah, 
is going to reign from Jerusalem. And they're just about to enter Jerusalem. Perhaps they're thinking, it's going to be soon. The places of prominence are about to happen. We want to make sure that before we get there, my two sons are sure to sit on Jesus' left and on Jesus' right, this great places of prominence. But you know that it's ironic that in Jerusalem, Jesus will have one on his left and one on his right as he hangs on a cross in between two criminals. They want the place of prominence, huh? Well, let's continue. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, Sure, we're able. Now, this cup is referring to Jesus' suffering and death. So, you know, on the cross, Jesus faced the wrath of God for sinners, and he was also embracing this physical punishment. It's referring to this cup of suffering. And those who follow Jesus are also going to face the cup of suffering. And, and Jesus says, are you up for it? And the brothers will say, we're all in? Sure, we are able to face it. But they don't know what they're talking about. They're probably thinking, we're coming in, and when you come in with a king, there's going to be some good times and some bad times. You press through the bad times, and eventually, voila, you're reigning. They're totally missing it. They think they're going to suffer a little, but Jesus is talking about death. And we know what's going to happen to these brothers in the future. One of them will be martyred, and one of them will be thrown into prison. Let's keep going. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 23. And he said to them, You will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. The Father decides who sits on the right and the left. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So, the other disciples hear that these two were trying to get the inside track and the kingdom sitting Jesus' left and Jesus' right. And they're like, man, those guys are using family ties to get in good with Jesus, to get on the left and the right. And they're jealous, they're angry, they're mad. And Jesus sees all of this unfolding and he enters right into this power-seeking, status-seeking disciples' striving for greatness and ambition and the world's ways. And look what Jesus says. Verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So the Jews know for sure this is the way the Gentiles function. The Gentiles, which would be the Romans, ruled over them in such a way with military might and heavy taxation. This is the way the, the Gentiles of the Romans function. The Jews knew it. They would abuse the Jews. They would dominate them with power. They would dominate them with, with control, and they would manipulate them. And so the disciples knew that's the way the Romans function. But what Jesus is saying, look... Don't you see that in your heart right now? Don't you see that by the way you're striving for greatness, that you're looking for domination, that you're looking for the inside track, that you're looking for control, that you're trying to manipulate your way up the ladder? 
I know that's in my heart. I know that's, that's probably in your heart as well. And, and, and we could talk about a lot of ways we try to throw our weight of power around, but let's look specifically at our career path. Because I know many of you are in a career, and probably most of you hope to be in one eventually. You're on some type of career path where God has called you to be a consultant, analyst of some sort. Maybe he's called you to be a teacher, a pastor, a doctor, or a lawyer. And as you are pursuing this career path or you are in your career, you are being taught some things by the world. And the world will tell you, if you want to be at the top of your game, you have to crank out the hours and make it a job of your life. The world will tell you, sometimes you have to throw your co-workers under the bus in order to move up a little. And the world may even tell you, hey, sometimes you just got to cut corners and lie. It's just part of the way the job works. It's the way it functions in the world. Lie a little bit here about statistics. Lie a little bit here about money. Cut corners here on the charts. This is just the way it's done. And you are a follower of Jesus, and you're wondering, okay, if I'm going to get to there, and this is the path I have to take to get to there, then I'm going to have to follow the path of the world. If I want to be great and have that power, I've got to go exactly the way the world's going. And maybe you think that's the way it works. But that's the way of the world. Jesus is for sure saying, as you seek power and ambition, as you seek to strive, as you seek to focus on obtaining your goal and getting to where you want to be in life, it will never require you to cheat. So as you strive for him with ambition and power, it's not going to require you to cheat others. I don't think it's going to require you to throw people under the bus either to treat them with unjust actions. And I even would say, as you pursue your career and as you pursue uh, your calling in life with great ambition... I, I, I don't think it's ever going to require you to, to jettison those who are closest to you. And I don't think it's ever going to bring you to a point in your life where you don't need to serve within the body of Christ. Have you ever met someone who says, you know what? During this season of my life, in order to pursue God's calling, I'm not going to use my gifts in the church. I'm not going to be involved in a local church. Someone may say, I'm in medical school right now. If you've ever been in medical school, you know it's a lot of work. And so during this season of my life, during medical school, I am not going to use my gifts within the church because I don't have time to serve. Do you think that God wants us to pursue power and ambition the same way the world does? Many of you are doing that right now. And you're trying to justify what you're doing by couching it in terms as the call of God. You're saying, God has called me to pursue this greatness, and it requires me to cut some corners. I'm just telling you, my brothers and sisters, there is another way. There is another way to pursue God's call in your life with ambition and significance and greatness does not follow the path of the world. You may not think there's another way, but there is another way. And Jesus shows us that way. Let's look. Show us the other way, Jesus. Verse 26. It shall not be so among you. So Jesus has something else in mind for his followers. 
It's not a path away from ambition. You may be taught in your Sunday school growing up that ambition is bad, but it is not a path away from ambition and greatness, but it is where the pursuit of greatness is flipped. It's flipped. Look what he says, verse 26. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Are you serious? The path to greatness is being a servant and a slave? That that doesn't even function in our culture, does it? Well, let me just help you a little bit. A servant is one who would take care of the the stuff around the house that other people didn't want to do, like the cooking and the, the, the cleaning and the menial task. They were hired to do this within the house. So you can understand when Jesus says, be a servant. But Jesus also says, be your slave. Now, a slave did not live their lives focusing on themselves. In fact, a slave was forced into service. There's no option here. So Jesus is calling us to be a slave and to be a servant. He's basically saying, I want you to voluntarily and intentionally serve others. So if you have ambition for greatness, take your ambition for greatness and serve others for the glory of God. That means to take all your gifts, all your time, your energy and money and somehow leverage it to serve other people. Rather than pursuing your power and greatness, take all the power that you have and empower others in serving them. Not where you're looking for a return back, but you're just looking to serve them and for their benefit. And you may think, well, there's no way. There's no way I'll ever get to that point. Well, James and John finally got to that point. John was a great leader in the early church, wrote a significant portion of the New Testament as he was eventually locked away in prison, and James was the first martyr of the church. I think James and John finally got it. And in fact, when you start reading some of the New Testament letters, the apostles will refer to themselves as servants and slaves of Christ. Do you want to refer to yourself as a slave of anybody? How about a slave of Christ? Paul, a slave of Christ. Peter, a servant of Christ Jesus. It's the way the New Testament believers started referring to themselves as followers of Jesus. But you know what? Jesus is not calling you to do something that he hasn't already done. Look at verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is a call to imitate Jesus. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And it says specifically here, if you notice, he says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. The idea of paying a ransom is to make a payment in order to release someone else. And so Jesus, he made the payment on the cross in order to turn away the wrath of God and to release us from the captivity of sin. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven your sins. And get this, you are redeemed and released from the captivity and the dominion of sin. That means sin is no longer your master. As a believer, you do not have to obey sin. 
Before you became a believer, the only way that you pursued ambition was pursuing ambition with God out of the picture. But you don't have to live that way anymore. You now have the freedom to submit to God because you're free from the slavery of sin. Let me share a couple of verses with you that are wonderful from Romans. Romans chapter 6 and uh, verse 6 and verse 14. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are free from the dominion of sin and you're free from the slavery of sin, you are now free to serve other people. Do not ever say, Jesus could serve other people because he was Jesus, but I can't because I'm a sinner. My brothers and sisters, you've been released from the dominion of sin. You now have the freedom to serve other people. I'm really trying to communicate this with you. One of the things that you've been free from is that you don't have to impress anybody anymore. You don't have to feel like you need to accomplish great things in this world so that other people will validate you. Some of you feel like that you have to accomplish great things so that God will validate you and love you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is saying you're already validated. There's a great book out right now that's by Dave Harvey called Rescuing Ambition. He says something very powerful. He says this, I no longer live for approval. I live from approval. That means that through faith in Jesus, God approves you. I know some of you you feel like you're a kid again. You feel like a kid again. You need your mom and dad to say, good job, good job, good job. And you get down in life and you think, does anybody love you? And you're like, where can I be validated? You are validated in Christ. You're approved in Christ. You don't need to impress anyone anymore. And through the gospel, you can start to act and pursue greatness for the glory of God out of a position of approval because you are loved by God in Christ. So since we've been freed from sin and we can now serve out of a place of approval, we are now called to imitate Jesus Christ. And I think what Jesus is saying here is very similar to what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians. Let me put up some of these verses for you. Starting with Philippians, um, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. I'll keep going. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is amazing. So in Jesus Christ, we have the pursuit of greatness flipped. In Jesus, he actually did that. John Ortberg, he, he says a great thing. He says that Jesus' life is a series of demotions. 
His life is a series of demotions. Think about this. For those of you who are really into organizational charts, and you're like, that really, you'd think that's just awesome. Well, Jesus was at the top of the organizational chart of the universe. And yet he got demoted as a servant. But even angels are servants. So he got even demoted even lower and took on human form. Well, even humans can be presidents and pop stars, right? So he said, okay, he's going to be born in a, fl- in, in a stable and live a life of poverty. Well, he's really being demoted here. And then, if it wasn't bad enough, he submitted himself to death. But just dying wasn't a demotion enough. It had to be the shameful and the painful death on the cross. So from a human point of view, if you were looking at what Jesus was doing, you would think, what are you doing? You are an absolute failure. You're still getting demoted, 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 demoted. But what is God's assessment? What is the Father's assessment of his son, Jesus Christ? Well, let me finish the rest of Philippians chapter 2. Let me finish it for you. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is amazing. Demotion, 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 exaltation. Wow. Is that the way you think? John Ortberg has a, a, a great quote. He says, The problem with spending your life climbing up the ladder is that you will go right past Jesus for he's coming down. Jesus is only calling us to do what he has done, to give his life away as a ransom for others. He's saying, give your life away for others. And how do you do this in life? What would this look like in your career movement, in your work environment? Once again, quote here from Dave Harvey in Rescuing Ambition. Some of you should pick this book up. It's really good. Good perspective here on your career. The career path of the Christian looks different for others than for others. We should not be hungry for our own name or unrestrained in our self-promotion. If God submitted his great majesty to the call of servanthood, we can submit our musical talents, our teaching desires, our motivational skills to the call of servanthood as well. It's like we take all of our gifts and all of our talents and use them for the glory of God and serving others. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And he set the standard for us to follow. And he empowers us to follow by grace. So if you think that Jesus came in to squash your ambitions, I know you have these internal desires to do significant things in this world before you die. Don't think that Jesus has come in and just kill that. He's flipping it. He wants you to see, look, live for his glory. Accomplish great and significant and magnificent things that bring him so much glory and praise and that comes in the path of serving others. 
Man, is it frustrating to preach a sermon like this because this is your classic Sunday school message, right? When you, if you, some of you went to church and Sunday school, it's like, well, just serve other people. Jesus did it. You do it. It's like a message you've heard for some of you for your whole entire lives. But one of the things that I get really concerned about is sometimes we like hearing the Sunday school message over and over again, and then we just like to talk about it, and we want to hear it some more, and we want to talk about it some more, and then we don't, we don't ever do anything. We're not ever intentionally or deliberately serving other people. Do you remember uh, two weeks ago, uh, I introduced you to a girl named Katie Davis. She was that, that 18-year-old girl who went on this trip to Uganda. Remember her? And she, she gets over there, and she gets convicted that she should be over there serving and loving with compassion. And so she moves over there, and now she's 22, and she's adopted like 14 kids. And just a magnificent story. It's in her book, Kisses from Katie. She explains that. But in her book, she says that one of the things that she's noticed about the American church is that in the American church, we will talk about serving others, and we will talk about compassion. And then one hour later, we're still talking about it. What is going on? Like, why would we want to just keep talking and talking and talking? Where we can actually, God, by his grace, be empowered to go and live like a servant. And so that got me thinking this week. What can I do for myself and for you that would make us strategic and functioning like a servant? And so I was, I was reading this book. It was this business book. You remember, there's a book by Jim Collins. You remember that guy, Good to Great? Well, he wrote this new book called Great by Choice. I don't know if you've ever read this. It's called Great by Choice. And this book shows characteristics of companies and leaders, get this, leaders who consistently had success over a long period of time. And you think, well, they're just lucky. No, he's saying they're not lucky. He says these leaders made specific and intentional choices along the way. And so I'm going to write my first book called Servant by Choice. So they don't mind. I've never written a book before, but hopefully if I ever do, Servant by Choice. Because I really think we can be intentional and deliberate about pursuing significance and greatness for the glory of God in his kingdom by making specific choices. Some of you are planners. Some of you have goals, and you're great at pursuing your plans and your goal. Can you imagine getting strategic and thinking of ways to get strategic and intentional and setting goals in the way that you leverage your life for others and the way that you think about giving your life away for others? So here we go. No more talk. How do we do it? I think all we do is this. We start with those that are closest to us, and we work our way out. That means when you leave here today, you can choose to be a servant for those who are closest to you. For some of that, that's your roommate, that's your family. You start with them. You move out. People you see at school, people you see at work, you serve them. You move out. Of course, you come to church. You serve others there. You move out to the rest of the world. And in order to not confuse you, and make you think about so many things this week, I want you to ask one simple question as you work in these different spheres of serving others. And here's that simple question. How 
can I best help this person flourish in life? I'm not a big fan of post-it notes and little signs all over your house, but if you're going to put a sign all over your house, put this one. How can I best help this person flourish in life? Imagine asking yourself with your family, with your friends, at work, with your company, at school, how can I best help these people flourish? And maybe you need to spend some time listening to them, encouraging them. Maybe you need to share the gospel with them. Maybe you need to give someone money, time, influence them. I don't know what it is, but if you let that question control you, it will turn you into a servant. How can I help best help this person flourish in life? We want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Please do not walk away saying, I'm so glad I learned again about being a servant. Function like a servant by God's grace and think about others and help them to flourish in life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've enabled us to flourish in life everlasting by sending your son, Jesus, to bear our sin. And we thank you that through his death on the cross, we are free from the dominion of sin, that we don't have to serve ourselves anymore. We can serve another Lord, the Lord Jesus. And we just ask that you would empower us to think how we can be empowered by you to serve others so that they can flourish. Even our enemies, even those who are against us, even the difficult people in our lives, how can we enable them to flourish? Show us what that would look like in each and every relationship we have. Show us how to make our companies flourish. Our our jobs flourish in different spheres. Our schools flourish. Our families flourish but not focusing on ourselves, but on you. And we cannot do this, Lord, without your vision. We can't do this without your power and your grace. So enable us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and ambitiously seek greatness by choosing to be a servant. In your name we pray, amen.